Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Word on Health podcast. In this edition, I'll be looking at the third most common movement disorder behind Parkinson's disease and essential tremor that affects 100,000 people across the UK that you've probably never heard of. Following their recent Awareness Month, I'll be talking to the charity Lupus UK. I'll be chatting to TV's Dr Chris Steele about one of our last health taboos. And to round things up, I'll be discussing mental health in the workplace with the charity Mind. So... You're listening to Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, for your very best of health. Dystonia is the term used to describe involuntary sustained muscle contractions that leads to abnormal movements and postures. It affects over 40,000 people across the UK. Val Wells is from the patient support charity, the Dystonia Society. It can affect people of all ages, class, cultures. In children, it can spread to other parts of the body. It can be quite devastating. It can impact on their ability to go to school, to socialise. In adults, it's less likely to spread to other areas, but it still has a huge impact on their lives. Val, I understand it's a neurological disorder that doesn't lead to problems with other functions of the brain, such as intellect, but that it does come in a number of different forms. There's a condition called blepharospasm, which affects the eyes, cervical dystonia, which affects the neck. You can have writer's cramp, golfer's yips, which affect the arms and it can affect the legs or mandibula, which affects the way the mouth moves people can have peculiar expressions on their faces do we know the root cause of these painful involuntary spasms movements or postures it is caused by interference in the way nerves cause muscles to work conditions such as parkinson's disease can lead to dystonic movements children with cerebral palsy may have dystonic movements it can result from trauma such as a head injury or a stroke there is a lot of work ongoing at the moment with genetics. It is proven that DYT1 gene has clear links to dystonia, but it doesn't necessarily mean that just because you have that gene, you will get dystonia. I read that it's difficult to get an accurate diagnosis. Why is that? It doesn't show up on an MRI scan. So quite often it's a case of eliminating other conditions before they come to the conclusion it's dystonia. So quite often people get signposted down the wrong routes. They end up in rheumatology with psychiatrists, all sorts of places. I know that there's no cure, but there are a small range of treatment and therapy options available from Botox to deep brain stimulation that can help. What about the future for people affected by dystonia? The future can be bright. Greater awareness leads to greater understanding. Hopefully people will get diagnosed earlier, will get treated earlier. In most situations, people can live very well if they get their treatment regularly. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. It's a lifelong autoimmune disease that it's believed affects over 50,000 people across the UK, most of whom have gone through a lengthy period of suffering before being successfully diagnosed. Chris Maker from the patient support charity Lupus UK joins me on the line now. Chris, just how long are we talking about here? A very long time. We've worked out an average of just over seven and a half years. It's a condition where the body's antibodies attack the person's own body and can present in many different ways and cause many symptoms and problems. So it's hard to diagnose initially. Who develops lupus? In the Caucasian population, it is quite a low prevalence, but in the black population and the Asian populations, it's far more prevalent. Predominantly, it's women of childbearing age between 15 and 45. So although one in 10 people with lupus are men and some children also get it as well. Why is that? It's still a mystery as to what causes lupus. It may be partly genetic, it's partly environmental, partly hormonal. One of the consultants we know quite well put it down to being dealt a certain hand of cards and if you have those cards then you get lupus. 
As these cards are revealed, how does the disease progress? Everybody's different with lupus. With some people, it will remain mild with extreme fatigue and pain in the joints and muscles. It can cause skin problems. Some people are very light sensitive. It can cause problems with some of the body's organs, most notably the kidneys. Hair loss can be a problem, poor circulation. Sadly, some people do succumb to it. But a lot of people can live a normal lifespan, provided they listen to their body, make sure they get plenty of sleep and rest when they need it, exercise moderately and eat the right things. Finally, Chris, I know it's incurable, but what about treatments? There's a whole range of medications which are used to treat lupus. Steroids are used quite widely and some antimalarial drugs. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. It's a condition that will affect one in three women in their lives and research shows it's one of our last health taboos with as many as 60% of the female adult population unable to discuss the problem. A situation all too familiar to TV medic Dr Chris Steele. Bladder weakness is the inability to control your bladder. In other words, urine is leaking out involuntary and it occurs specifically when you're straining in situations such as laughing, coughing, sneezing, exercise. Dr. Chris, I understand that bladder weakness is more common than hay fever. It also affects one in eight men and women of all ages. We think it's an old lady's problem, but in fact, you have to remember that pregnancy is a major factor in weakening your pelvic floor, the muscles across your pelvis that support your bladder and your womb and your bowel. When they're weakened by pregnancy, even after a first pregnancy, many women suffer bladder weakness. They may recover, but subsequent pregnancies can make it worse. You mentioned pregnancy as a contributing factor in bladder weakness in women. Of course, there are other causes which we'll cover on our wordandhealth.com website. As I mentioned in my introduction, the majority of people with bladder weakness don't feel able to discuss the problem and elect to suffer in silence. Yet we shouldn't be burying our head in the sand about this condition, should we? You shouldn't put up with this problem. It can be controlled and in many cases it can be cured. If you learned how to do pelvic floor exercises correctly, 70% of women could could be cured of their bladder weakness problems. If you don't know how to do pelvic floor exercises, talk this over with your GP because he may well have access to a physiotherapist's continence advisors. And once you learn pelvic floor exercises and how to do them correctly, then you're actually helping yourself to control the bladder and strengthen those muscles that support your bladder. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. The coronavirus outbreak has put huge financial pressures on the workforce and workplace with many organisations taking or facing very difficult decisions related to staffing. Even with support measures in place from the government, some industries have ceased operations altogether, while others cannot afford to retain staff on a long-term basis. Whether expected or sudden, redundancy can cause huge uncertainty, stress and anxiety and can make existing mental health problems worse. Something all too familiar to mental health charity Mind, Faye McGuinness is their head of workplace wellness programmes. What we're saying to people is they are particularly facing redundancy and job change. It's important that they try and look after themselves. So it's important that people know their rights, that they're able to plan and organise their money and just take some time to look after their well-being. I think it's fair to say that the current economic situation means that unfortunately redundancies are sometimes unavoidable. But actually it's really important to remember that being made redundant isn't something that people should be ashamed of. We need to remind people that they're not to blame. And actually giving people time and the space to 
express their feelings and talk to other people about what they're experiencing is really important. If people are starting to notice changes in their feelings, thoughts or behaviour, particularly if they've lasted longer than two weeks, then actually that's when we say to people that you should really consider speaking to somebody that you trust. And some of the stuff that we've been talking to employers about is if you are going to be making people redundant, what can you do or what can you think about in terms of supporting those people to become employable elsewhere? The days of just making people redundant have to be a thing of the past. We should be thinking about how we support those employees while they're still with us so that actually if they are made redundant, they feel like they have got something to take with them into the future. I think it's really important that we need support people to practice self-care and spend time reflecting on what makes them feel happy and fulfilled. So we have something at mind called a wellness action plan. And we talk a lot about this in the workplace context, but actually anybody could fill out this wellbeing action plan. And it allows them to identify the things that might cause them to feel unwell, what they need to do to look after themselves, what signs they might exhibit if they're not feeling at their best. And we encourage people to kind of share that information with their friends, their families, their colleagues, so that others might notice if they're not feeling at their best as well. And I think the last thing that I would say is that there is a huge amount of uncertainty at the moment. So we would recommend that people try and focus on the things that they can control. So, you know, consider polishing your CV and reaching out to old contacts. Again, going back to that planning and organising your money so that you can kind of control elements of that as well. We know that when we're struggling with our mental health, it can be hard to manage finances, but actually worrying about money can make mental health worse. So we do recommend people creating a budget, and and that can be a really good step if you're worrying about particularly finances. Um, So there's some of the things that I would share. And Mind have got a whole coronavirus hub on our website. And there's a lot of information, advice and support on there. So I'd really recommend people look at that as much as they can. For further information on any of the interviews featured on this podcast, log onto our website, www.wordandhealth.com. That's www.wordandhealth.com. All that remains is to thank my contributors and you for listening. Word on Health. On air and online 52 weeks of the year with Paul Pennington. Word on Health. Your personal prescription for your very best of health.